Learning about Jesus from the one who was his closest friend. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn about truth and love from John the Beloved. We are studying 1 John, and now we're moving into chapter 4. We finished chapter 3 yesterday. Today and tomorrow we're going to study 1 John chapter 4. Now, what's interesting about 1 John chapter 4 is that the author of this letter was somebody who was with Jesus in the flesh. Day by day, Jesus called John and his brother James to leave their father Zebedee while they were fishing on a boat and come and follow Jesus, which they did. And then they, they joined up with other disciples and Jesus taught them for three years. And then at the end of three years, he died, he rose again, he appeared to them, and then he, then he ascended into heaven. And John is reflecting back on that experience. And when he told people that he knew Jesus, that God became flesh and dwelt among them, there were as many people then that were skeptical about that as we are today. We're skeptical about it. And what we, meaning our world around us, are skeptical about this because that's we've never seen that before. We've never seen anybody die and then come out of the grave and, and rise again. So that's that's very, very difficult for us to comprehend. We don't we are very skeptical about it. Because we we write, we we have science and technology and engineering and math, and we understand the human body is a complex organism, and once it dies, it doesn't like come back together again. It would take an incredible supernatural force for that to happen, which of course is exactly what happened. That that an extraordinary supernatural force brought Jesus out of the grave, which was God, and and that's what we believe, cling to, confess. But if you were a Greek or a Roman, seeped in that philosophy, it would have been difficult for a different reason. And the reason is that if you were a first century Jewish Roman philosopher, somebody who thought about life, you would have believed strongly with every being of your body that everything around you, the fleshly things, the earthly things, the matter, the things you touch, everything on this earth is evil. And the only good is the spiritual realm. It's very, very much Greek philosophy. Everything that you can touch is, is evil. The world is evil. But the spiritual world is not evil. The spiritual world is good. The spiritual world is perfect. So in the early church, they not only had to fight the whole thing about the resurrection, which probably wasn't as difficult a thing as was the fact that God actually became flesh and inhabited something that was evil. That really was the, the problem with the early church and early Christianity. It wasn't that Jesus rose again. I mean, that is a difficult thing and a great concept, but it, it really was the fact that God, who is perfect, became flesh to dwell in an evil world. That actually, if you go back to the word suffering, we think of suffering as 
you know, somebody hits us or, you know, inflicts pain on us. And so therefore we're suffering or emotional pain on us or suffering. Well, the suffering that God in the early church, when they talk about suffering and God, it was the fact that God left his perfect spiritual realm and inhabited a realm that is not perfect. And that was the initial definition of suffering. It was a very, very hard concept. So people had to come up with different ways to view Jesus so they could work it out in their head that God, this perfect God, could come, become flesh and dwell among us. And so there were a, a couple things that happened at that point in, in the early church that we call them heresies, these, these philosophical arguments that arose to try to deal with the fact that God is inhabiting inhabiting the flesh. So think about that as we begin to read 1 John chapter 4, because John's going to address this a little bit. And uh, so I think what we'll do is just go ahead and get into it. 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, where John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So the Spirit of the Antichrist is somebody who denies that Jesus is God. We saw this earlier in an earlier chapter of John. But now John is even taking it one step further. He says not that Jesus isn't God. All right, we've already established that, but that he came in the flesh and that he's from God. So John truly believed that this person that he walked around with, that taught the the crowds and the multitude, he was God and he was in the flesh, which is a very, very difficult concept for people around him that he was talking to. He could either be God, but not in the flesh, or he's in the flesh, but not true God. One of those two things, but he can't be both God and in the flesh. That would not work. And so that was something that that John is dealing with here. And he says, you, you are a spirit of truth. You have to test the spirits because what he means by this is all these philosophies, these, these different things that are going to come out, you know, that are in the world while John was in the world and may come into the world even after John's gone. Anybody that denies that Jesus is both true man and true God is not of God. And you have to test this, the philosophy or the people that are leading the church and see if they are saying that it's true man and true God. And if they're not saying that, it's a heresy. It's wrong. It's not, as, as John would say here, it's a spirit not from God. It's the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even is now already in the world. So this philosophy, this, this idea that Jesus isn't true man and true God was already present at the time of John. Now imagine you're John. Imagine that you spent three years with Jesus and Jesus says, uh, I am he, I am God. I am the one preeminent from the beginning. I, am, I was there at the creation of the world and I will be there after the world is gone. I am, I am God. 
And that's why they crucified him, because he said he was God. And if you're John and you were with Jesus and he said that he's God, you're going to believe that he's God. But if you're John and you're also with Jesus and you could touch him and you could give him a hug and you could eat meals with him and all that sort of thing, then you would have seen that he's also in the flesh. He wasn't something else other than the flesh. So, so John very, very strongly feels here in 1 John 4 that anybody denies any of that is an antichrist. Anybody that denies that God is true man and true flesh, true, true God and true flesh is not, is not in the spirit of, of the Jesus movement. They're something outside. John calls them the antichrist. Now, there was... The first heresy, I think, that the church dealt with, we always hear about Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this, comes from the Greek word gnosis, and it means that if you become a follower of Jesus, you get, a, you get an inner knowledge about, about the world around you, that, that God comes in and permeates you and, and takes your mind over and and gives you an inner sign or an inner eye or an inner peace or whatever, inner, inner understanding of the world around you. That was called Gnosticism. But one of the things under this subset of Gnosticism was a thing called Docetism or Docetism. And Docetism is an interesting heresy. And it really deals with this whole thing about whether or not flesh can be good. Docetism had two forms. The first form was that Jesus wasn't really flesh and blood. Jesus was a ghost. Jesus was, uh, Jesus was a person who came and taught and lived among the disciples, but he wasn't flesh. He was pure spirit. He may have appeared as flesh, and maybe you could even touch him and eat with him and all those sort of things, although spirits don't normally do that sort of thing. So, but, but that he was, he was actually a, a ghost. A, can I use the word phantasm, right? He was, he was an apparition. He wasn't really flesh. He was a spirit that looked like flesh. And that solves all the problems, right? Because if Jesus is a spirit that looks like flesh, then none of the disciples were incorrect. They ate, they talked. They lived with Jesus for three years. He died. The, you know, the body or the flesh appeared to die, but then because he was just a spirit, you know, the spirit died and the spirit rose again. It's not a problem. Actually, that's what spirits do. It's, it's a perfect explanation for the resurrection because Jesus was never flesh. He just appeared as flesh, but he was really a spirit. He died, stayed in the tomb for three days, and he came out again, and it solves all the problems except for one, and that is if you are John— you realize that he was more than just a spirit. He was a true human being that, that, that was truly flesh. The other, the other idea that was part of docetism that could have explained this too was that Jesus was flesh, but he was inhabited by a spirit, like a demon, except a, a good spirit, right? And this happened at his baptism where the spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. So Jesus, prior to that point, wasn't true God, true man. He just just a man. And then at his baptism, the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus, and he became both God and man. He, he, was, he was man inhabiting flesh, 
like all of us do, but then this spirit came into him, and now he's a spirit man, flesh man. And then he died, and then what rose again wasn't the true flesh man, but the spirit man. And so what John saw and what the early disciples saw wasn't really a fleshly man, but a spiritual man. And then he ascended into heaven. And John's like, no, that's not what happened. He was true man and true God at his baptism. He was true man, true God during his teaching time, his time on earth, his public ministry. He was true God and true man when he died. And he was true God, true man when he rose again. He was true God and true man when he ascended into heaven. All of that is true. And I will defend this till my dying days. And if anybody denies any of that, they're an antichrist. So that's docetism. And that's really kind of what the flavor of we're getting here from John, because it's like this Antichrist spirit is coming out. And it's not what happened. What happened was that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He, he stayed with us. He, he was true God. He was true man and true, true God, true man through the whole thing. Now, in the early church, as these heresies started making headway into the world around them, they convened these things called ecumenical councils. And in these ecumenical councils, they brought all the bishops, which were the leaders of a church in a region. They brought them all together in one place, and they debated what Jesus was and, and how they should defend this truth that John's talking about. And they came up with these creeds. The first creed that they came up with is the Apostles' Creed, which actually predated when they officially declared it as a creed of the church because it came from the old Roman creed, which was very, very early, maybe even contemporary with John. And the old Roman creed is pretty much the same as the Apostles' Creed. And what did they say in the Apostles' Creed? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. I mean, that, that whole thing came out about 325 AD as the Apostles' Creed, as the creed that the apostles, including John, talked about. And what that fights again is this whole thing about docetism and Gnosticism. All these early heresies of the church are part of this. And then even after the heresy started coming out, it's like, well, okay, let's further refine it. So we had the Nicene Creed, which further, you know, light of light, true man, true man, and true God, light of light, uh, flesh, you know, he is flesh and God and everything, and further refines it in the Nicene Creed, and then even further refines it in the Athanasian Creed. Which is interesting because we don't really fight the heresies of Athanasius and, and Nicaea anymore. We, we fight different heresies today, which makes me wonder if we should update the creed to fight the heresies that are, that are in the world today. Like every generation, we understand a different understanding of the creed by taking things out of Scripture and putting it together as a statement about God that fights against the battles that we're fighting today. And that's our creed, and that's what we teach people. Um, maybe that's, a, maybe that's a, something I'll look at when I, when I have time to look at that. <laughs> anyway, um, so, dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits and see if they're from God. Because if they, do not de if they deny that Jesus is true flesh and true man, they're the Antichrist. And I've heard they're coming into the world. All right, let's, let's continue on in verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, 
being these antichrists, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So he just further elaborates on this point that, but you know, you know the truth because the spirit of God lives in you, and you listen to me, and I listen to Jesus, and I preach the truth. And so therefore, the spirit that is in you is greater than the spirit that is in the world. And this is actually, some people have this as a plaque on their wall or a saying somewhere. He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world, basically. Or uh, he the one is in you is greater than the one is in the world. This is such a great comfort to us because if the spirit of God dwells in you, that spirit is greater than anything that the world has to offer. It's a very good source of strength. I love this verse. You should memorize or put it on a, on a plaque on your, on your wall. First John 4, 4. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. But those who speak from the viewpoint of the world that denies that Jesus is true God and true man, don't listen to him. It's not true. This is how you recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood is whoever denies that Jesus is true God, true man. So that's, that's basically 1 John 4, 1 through 6. And it fights against the heresies of the early church. And we have different heresies today. I think the heresy that is prevalent in our world today is that God can't exist because we can't test him. We can't run an experiment that proves that God exists. So therefore, God doesn't exist. We, we follow the science, as some are saying, you know, some say today. And if the science doesn't lead in that direction, we're, we're going to deny it. But as Christians, we, we follow the science as far as science goes, but the whole idea that God exists is not a question of science. It's a question of theology. It's a question of the spirit. It's a question of the human condition. It's a question of something much deeper and much wider, much broader than the question of science. It's, it's a question of, is God out there? And I mean, because obviously the definition of God is that which cannot be proven. That's the definition of God. If God exists, and I believe he exists, then the, there is no way to prove it because he's outside of the natural world created order. I mean, he exists and he guides and directs the natural created order, but the whole definition about God is that he's something greater than what we can see, touch, feel. I mean, he's outside of our environment. And if he's outside of our environment, then the science would say, well, then if he's outside of our environment, there's absolutely nothing we can do to test the proof. Well, yes, you proved my point, Mr. Scientist. <laughs> We cannot prove that God exists because that's the whole definition of God. And yet, there are many, 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 many people that says God doesn't exist because we can't prove that he exists. And by the way, there's suffering in the world. And so therefore, if God exists and God is love, there couldn't be suffering. To which a Christian says, well, unless suffering isn't what we think it is. Unless suffering is a reflection of God who suffered and came and dwelt among us and that maybe suffering is something much deeper and wiser and more powerful than a, a force than we could possibly imagine. And maybe, Mr. Non-Christian, when we die, we'll find out why there was suffering in this world and why God used the natural created order to create pain and havoc 
in our lives and kicked us out of the Garden of Eden, oh wait, maybe it has something to do with original sin and, and free will and all these different philosophical questions that people have struggled with for thousands of years. And the Christian faith actually does a phenomenally good job of addressing evil, suffering, uh, better than, pro I don't think there's another faith out there that deals with suffering better than Christianity. Suffering is central to Christianity. And, and that God is love is central to Christianity. And both those things are held, one in the left hand and one in the right hand. And we hold them both equally. And we don't understand how we can hold both equally, but we hold them both, both equally because God became flesh and lived with John and was in the flesh. He was, he was not some apparition or some spirit or some, some body that, that got you know, overtaken by a spirit. He was truly God, true man the whole time. That's what John's talking about. Uh, let's see, do we want to go on to verse 7? Sure, let's just go into verse 7. So, dear friends, this is 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. I just want to pause and sing a song that goes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loveth knoweth God, and loveth God. He who loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. That is also a great, great thing to have on your wall, too. I mean, First John is filled with sayings that you should put. You could have a First John wall and just have them all filled up with, with sayings. And this would be another one. Friends, love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves knows God and is loved by God. But if you don't love, you don't know God. For God is love. So love one another. That is just basic John theology 101. Just love one another. The whole book of John, 1 John, is about God is love. And therefore, we should love one another. Oh, but he goes on. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So this is John's theology. God is love. God became flesh to love us. Because he loved us, we are to love other people. That's not too difficult, is it? This is how he showed his love. He sent his one and only son into the world to love us as an atoning sacrifice. He talked about this in chapter 3, chapter 2, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We don't do anything ourselves. Jesus has done everything for us. This is great theology fantastic theology that Jesus became flesh to dwell among us also to forgive our sins so that we could be right with God. We could live in the kingdom pure and holy and righteous because Jesus covers our sins. Not that we are pure, holy, and righteous because we're still sinful individuals, but God covers that sin with his righteousness and so therefore we can be in the kingdom. Great, great, great theology. And it 
comes from John. Also comes from Paul and other people, but definitely comes from John here. Uh, because God loves us, we should love one another. Now, this is interesting. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Well, didn't isn't Jesus God? And didn't John see God? So is there a disconnect here? And this, this is a section of scripture that makes us pause. Like how understanding our theology that Jesus is true God and true man. Like how does, how does John say he's, no one has seen God? But remember who he's writing to are people who believe that God lives in this, that the true spirit, the true God lives in this otherness but that he became flesh and dwelt among us and then went back. So what we saw on this earth was from God and is God, but it's not all of God. I mean, it was all of God, and that's what the early church you know, also fought with that heresy, that the full entire Godhead dwelt in Jesus, but the full entire Godhead was also something out there that we couldn't fully comprehend. And... The, you have to hold that in your hand too because that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But but understand that we are limited human beings with limited brains and everything that we do to try to make sense out of who God is and, and who Jesus is, we're trying to do with limited human brains that that are just not understanding. I think of it as as 3D, right? Like if you live in a 2D world, you cannot understand. That's probably not a good explanation. It's good for mathematicians, but it's probably not good for people who don't live in the world of math. Um, the, the thing is, it's hard to explain something that's outside of your... Oh, here's one philosophical one. There was a thing called the Johari window. And the Johari window is based, it has four sections on it. Things that I know about myself and that everybody else knows about myself. And then there's another box that says things that I know about myself that nobody knows about me. And there's another box, things that I don't know about myself but other people know about me. And then the fourth box is things that I don't know about me and things that nobody else knows about. They're unknown unknowns. And we can't know them because there's no way to know them because we don't have the framework or the understanding to know what's in that box. Well, the same thing is true with God living in our world. We live in this world. We inhabit this world. So our whole frame of reference is this world. But God created this world. So he has to be outside of this world. And that part, we just don't understand because we don't have the framework to understand it. That, that, is, that is what John is saying here. We, God is love, but, we, but we don't, we've never seen that part of God. We've never seen the, the part of God that lives outside because he still remains out there unknown and unknowable to us because we're humans. And as humans, we can never know that part, but we will someday when the trumpets sound and all the dead shall rise and we'll be with him forever. Then we'll finally get to see into that box and maybe we'll get the understanding and the wisdom and the understanding of, of what God is from that. So that's a future thing. We don't get to see that now. All right, we're going to just finish this uh, little section off. Uh, this is how, this is verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be a savior, to be the savior of the world. 
If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So Jesus is from God. He's the Son of God. He is God because he said he was God. He said, I am the great I am. Said that to the woman by the well. Yeah, we know that, that the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, well, I'm that one. I'm, I am the God become flesh, dwell with us. And this is how we know it. He's given us his spirit. So the spirit of God lives in us so that we can testify that God is, that Jesus is God. And that's what we've seen and we testify, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So if you can confess that, that Jesus is God, then the Spirit of God lives in you. If you can't confess that, then the Spirit of God doesn't live in you. And so there are early heresies that were going around there, Gnosticism, Docetism, Manichaeism in the 7th century, all these different emanations of trying to figure out. Here's the bottom line. In every culture, there is a barrier that exists that prevents people from believing in God. In John's time, it was the barrier that God couldn't be flesh and spirit at the same time. So that's what John's writing to here. But every culture has a barrier that exists that prevents people from believing in God. And while John was fighting this barrier, we have our own barriers to fight. And we should fight those barriers because Scripture is complete with words and messages and themes and understandings and worldviews that fight against every worldview that could possibly pop, pop up in the world. That, that's what I believe, that, that, that God's word is complete. But throughout the history of the world, there have been people that want to promote Jesus and by so doing, they'll say something or believe a worldview or a philosophy that makes Jesus palatable for that worldview or for that culture. And the church needs to fight against that because there is one worldview, which is the Christian worldview. And we, we can try to explain it as much as we can, but every culture is going to be resistant to Jesus because of some barrier that they have in their head. And right now, like I said, the barrier we have right now is that we can't prove that God exists and there's suffering in the world. So therefore, God can't exist. So we, as a church, should focus on the fact, like this would really resonate with our culture, that Jesus came and suffered and we saw it as good. That is something that highly resonates with our culture today, where they would pause and think and look at the life of Jesus and see that he was crucified, and we celebrate his crucifixion. So maybe there's something more to suffering than what we understand in our culture. And that would be something that, that would resonate with our world today. It resonates with many cultures, but particularly in our culture today, that would be something that resonates. So we should highlight and stress that. That suffering isn't as is it as it seems. And suffering is bad and it's painful and it's horrible and it's difficult, but I'm here and I walk beside you in the suffering. And there is a greater good that you can't see now and you may never see because all things work for good 
but someday it will all be revealed to you why the suffering happened and what can come of that suffering, how God used that suffering for his great grand plan. There's a purpose in suffering, even though we don't see it, that God uses it for his good. These are messages that really, I think, resonate with our world today. And not against John at all. Not against John at all. All right, I think we'll leave it there. So would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for your spirit that lives in us and helps us to testify that you are true God and true man. Be with us today and the rest of the day until we come together again. In your son's name we pray, amen.